welcome to the Beltway Insiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor at places like the Dispatch and elsewhere, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting your podcast and leave those reviews. Those five-star ratings, especially on iTunes, they help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave the review, sharing the podcast with others is always how we usually grow anyway, so that is always appreciated, because I always look forward to hearing from where you guys are here from us. So in this week's show, in the first segment, we're going to talk about the latest developments in the Trump campaign lawsuits and why they're making little traction and little headway. It's basically the same answer that I've had the last few weeks, but I'll go through because we actually have some written opinions this week, which are interesting. So I'll go through a few of those. And then in the second segment, we're going to stay on the legal front. We're going to talk about the first look we've gotten yet into the newly constituted Supreme Court with Justice Amy Coney Barrett on the bench. And then in this week's light item, we'll take a stroll back to 2016, where we'll hear a currently very familiar argument on what the electors should do when they vote in a few weeks. You may not recall this if you're you know, more conservative, Republican, or on the right, but this was a discussion in 2016, and we're going to go back and hear a little clip from that year that kind of goes into some familiar themes. So those are this week's topics. Let's switch the agenda for this week, so we will just jump right in. So like I said, we're going to start with the Trump election lawsuits, and there's there's just not a ton to add. Their campaign is continuing to pursue lawsuits in various states, but they've gained no traction anywhere or in any of them. You have these people on the side, basically your sideshow carnival barkers, the people like Linwood and Sidney Powell, who are filing somewhat bizarre lawsuits in places like Georgia and elsewhere. And from what I've seen and read, from what they've filed, there's just not a shred of evidence or any merit to the legal arguments that they're making in them. They keep claiming big things and then not presenting evidence of any of those things. And it's beginning to make a lot of these judges pretty angry because they're having to deal with basically what they see as frivolous lawsuits. And you see these Linwood, these Sidney Powells, they're claiming these big things, and then they're putting out these donation links, trying to get people to donate to their legal defense fund for Donald Trump, and then the filings that we're seeing coming out of them are just... They're just baseless. That's the only word I really have for them. And the kicker is that when you really start digging into them is that they're poorly written, they're poorly argued, they're bad legal writing. They can't get basic things like the party names right on the headers. And that's, you know, when you look at a lawsuit, you have here are the parties, here's the case number, blah, 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 blah. And they can't do the basics like getting that right things that you should just be plugging in from a form and going from there, and they can't get these basic things right. 
there's just mistakes and errors all the way through it. You have some of their so-called experts have this information that they presented for one. They say this is all the information for one state, but when you dig into it, it's a whole. their entire data set is for an entirely different state. There were some mix-ups, I think, with one of them between Michigan and Minnesota. And so it's just... It's just garbage. It's a mess. And they're not doing anything right. And so then you jump from there and you jump into what the Trump campaign is doing and you jump into some of their things and they're not having any better luck. And what you're hearing, mostly from the Jenna Ellis and Rudy Giuliani angle from the campaign, their excuse is is that those courts haven't been allowing them to present evidence which just isn't true. They've been able to present evidence if they've had it every step of the way, and they just flat haven't brought any evidence to courts. And that's what's beginning to anger some of these these judges, that they're having to listen to these arguments for extreme charges of extreme things that have happened, and when they ask for evidence or they look for evidence, they aren't given any. Now, the only interesting case, once you get out of that kind of stuff, is in Pennsylvania. In there, the Trump campaign and the state GOP, they argued that the mail-in ballot statute, the one that is most at issue in Pennsylvania that allowed people to cast a mail-in ballot for basically any reason at all, What they've argued is that that statute is unconstitutional under the Pennsylvania state constitution. Now, as far as just arguments go, it's actually quite interesting and quite novel, and you could dig into some pretty interesting things. So they're just, if you're interested in a, on the legal front, there are some actually compelling arguments going both ways. In fact, there was some Amici briefs that were filed by some very well-known professors across the country um, in favor of supporting the statute, and then on the other side, you have some pretty novel arguments there as well. So there are actually substantive arguments being made in that case. The problem with that argument is that that law has been on the books for a while now. There have been multiple elections, and no one has raised any problems with that. And the other issue is this, that if the court rules that that law is, in fact, unconstitutional, then that would invalidate and disenfranchise, disenfranchise effectively potentially millions of voters in Pennsylvania who did nothing more than follow the rules that they were given by the state. So you're punishing the voters for doing something that the state did here. Now, no judge wants to go with that kind of ruling, and they especially don't want to go with that kind of ruling after you already have all the votes cast. It'd be one thing if this law was passed and then there was an immediate lawsuit. That'd be one thing. Because then you could, if this was still an issue at an election time, you could issue an injunction and say, okay, well, until we figure out this, we're not going to allow anybody to vote by mail. But instead, they let it go through, and now they're all sitting here and saying, okay, well, you're, you, the only reason you raised this, this argument, state GOP, is because you lost the election, and now you're looking to invalidate votes. That's kind of a low-down, dirty way to make this kind of argument, and the court doesn't want to do that kind of thing. So... The state courts, the the state Supreme Court, doesn't want to take that argument. Now, that's going to get appealed, obviously. The Trump campaign said they were going to appeal it. The thing about that, though, is that that specific argument, anyway, 
is that you're talking about a, a state law as applied under the state constitution. There's not really any federal laws or the federal constitution. There's nothing, no issues with that in play here. So it's unlikely that you're going to see any kind of appeal go before the federal courts or the Supreme Court on this specific issue or this case. That That's basically done because the U.S. Supreme Court is not going to tell another state Supreme Court how to rule on their state constitution. That's not an area where the U.S. Supreme Court's really going to get into, and for good reason. There's some separation of powers issues there, and that's just a line they're generally not going to cross. There has to be some kind of federal issue at play where either the state constitution is wrong on that, or there is some kind of crossover here. There's got to be something where the Fed, you know, federal judges can sink their teeth into. So on that state claim in Pennsylvania, which is the most interesting claim that we have here, that's basically dead and gone now because they've dismissed that and they're moving on. It is worth noting, however, there's a similarly situated case about Pennsylvania that's also in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. So the Trump campaign has had all these different areas of litigation. They've tried under the state laws. They're also arguing some things under federal laws. And so they had a case before the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, and this was mainly about whether or not they could amend their complaint, add more things, and the courts just got fed up and shot it all down. And this was, before the Third Circuit, this was an opinion written by a Trump appointee. I think his name is Stefanos Bibas, maybe? I haven't heard his name, but in any event, he wrote the following. I thought it was a great opening set of paragraphs. Just sort of sets up, sets out what they're seeing in these cases and why they're ruling against the Trump campaign. So he starts out and he writes as follows: Free and fair elections are the lifeblood of our democracy. Charges of unfairness are serious. But calling an election unfair does not make it so. Charges require specific allegations and then proof. We have neither here. The Trump presidential campaign asserts that Pennsylvania's 2020 election was unfair. But as lawyer Rudolph Giuliani stressed, the campaign, quote, doesn't plead fraud. This is not a fraud case. Instead, it objects that Pennsylvania Secretary of State and some counties restricted poll watchers and let voters fix technical defects in their mail-in ballots. It offers nothing more. This case is not about whether those claims are true. Rather, the campaign appeals on a very narrow ground, whether the district court abused its discretion in not letting the campaign amend its complaint a second time. It did not. Most of the claims in the Second Amendment complaint boil down to issues of state law. But Pennsylvania law is willing to overlook many technical defects. It favors counting votes as long as there's no fraud. Indeed, the campaign has already litigated and lost many of these issues in state courts. The campaign tries to repackage these state law issues as unconstitutional discrimination. Yet its allegations are vague and conclusory. It never alleges that anyone treated the Trump campaign or Trump votes worse than it treated Biden campaign or Biden votes. 
And federal law does not require poll watchers or specify how they may observe. It also says nothing about curing technical state law errors in ballots. Each of these defects is fatal, and the proposed Second Amendment complaint does not fix them, so the district court properly denied leave to amend again. Nor does the campaign deserve an injunction to undo Pennsylvania's certification of its votes. The campaign's claims have no merit. The number of ballots it specifically challenges is far smaller than the the roughly 81,000 vote margin of victory, and it never claims fraud or that any votes were cast by illegal voters. Plus, tossing out millions of mail-in ballots would be drastic and unprecedented, disenfranchising a huge swath of the electric and upsetting all down-ballot races, too. That remedy would be grossly disproportionate to the procedural challenges raised, so we deny the motion for an injunction pending appeal. So that is the third secret court of appeals, and that is a Trump appointee. And he's a recent one, too. And so the Senate worked overtime to ensure that these were conservatives and that these were smart, some of the best judges that you could have on the right. This is some of the best legal writing that you're going to find that lays out all the problems and does so in only a few paragraphs. And these judges aren't seeing any merit in a single one of the Trump campaign's claims. There's no proof that there was any fraud. There's no proof that there were any votes cast that shouldn't have been. There's no proof here that they've offered that anything went wrong. And it's unlikely any of this changes, even if this case makes it to the Supreme Court. In fact, I, I, I'll be honest, I don't expect the Supreme Court to even take this case. I would be shocked if they did, because this, this opinion basically lays out everything that I would expect the Supreme Court to say as well. So, I, there's just nothing here that the Trump campaign has presented as a means of changing anything that's happened. They have not provided evidence that there was widespread fraud. They've just offered allegations. And these are empty allegations. Now, maybe they know that they're empty and they're just trying to put a cloud over you know, the next administration. But even if that's the case, that's not a very good thing to do because that was a thing that happened to them in 2016. And again, if you don't have the evidence of that proof, then what you're doing is bad. So there's no proof here being offered by anybody that a single thing has happened here that is untoward. Now, that doesn't mean that fraud didn't occur. There's fraud that occurs in every election. We know this. I've sat down at phone banks and taking these phone calls. The problem is that there's no proof that it happened at a scope to change the results of any of these elections in any of these states. And if there is that proof, the Trump campaign doesn't have it or it doesn't exist. So you can take your pick there. So the Electoral College vote, that's coming up in two or three weeks here. And there's just nothing here that says that's going to change. There's nothing the Trump campaign has presented to overturn the results of this election. And it's hard to see anything changing that right now. Now, obviously, it's 2020. Anything can happen. Fully admit that. But so far, nothing is happening in these lawsuits. There's no merit in any of these lawsuits. And so, unless that changes, you're looking at President Biden, and that's 
going to happen here because there's nothing that the Trump campaign has provided to show that that's going to change in any single way. So we're going to take a quick break with that there, and we're going to come back. We'll stick with the legal themes and talk about the Supreme Court's religious liberty decisions. So we got our first good look this past week at the newly constituted Supreme Court. And I say first because I know they've had hearings and they've had issued some orders here and there related to the death penalty stuff, just some basic stuff. So there's other things that have been happening. But this is really our first true look at the Supreme Court when they're issuing actual written opinions. And in this one involving religious liberty, you had Amy Coney Barrett in the majority. You had John Roberts with a lone dissent. And the the liberals were in their own small block here. And then you had just a flat-out on-fire concurrence by Justice Gorsuch agreeing with the majority opinion. In this case, it was uh, called the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn, New York versus Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York. It was combined with a similar case bought by, brought by some by a uh, Jewish synagogue. I'm going to butcher the name of this here probably in a little bit when I read through portions of the court's opinion here. Uh, but basically you have Catholics and Jews suing Andrew Cuomo, alleging both violations of their First Amendment right. That was what one of the first things they both alleged. And in, in the Jewish case, you had specific allegations that they had targeted discrimination against them on the basis of their faith. So at this point in the litigation and where we are in the court case, the issue here is not whether or not the Supreme Court is deciding what happens in this case. The the real issue is about an injunction. And so an injunction is where you're trying to prevent some action from taking place or keep something from, you know, going into act uh, while litigation takes place. So in this case, the petitioners here are requesting an injunction against Andrew Cuomo from being able to uh, forbid them from ha- from having more than 10 to 25 people in their churches or synagogues, depending on which zone that they're in. So they are trying to win an injunction here. And under this court opinion, they won that right to have an injunction, and an injunction will go into place against Cuomo. And so he will not be able to prevent these churches and synagogues from having you know, more than 10 or 25 people. Now, he may be able to issue some other other type of orders, but the kind that he has right now, he will not be able to, to issue against these groups. So, that happened on a five to four basis. So, you had Barrett, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch in the majority with Alito and Thomas, and then you had Roberts dissenting with the three liberals now, Roberts had a dissent by himself, and then you had the liberals in their own small three-person block here. They all had one together. That was Breyer, written by Breyer. And then Kagan and Sotomayor had a separate one, which, frankly, the two dissents from the liberal groups, they don't actually work together. They're saying some different things, but nonetheless, they decided to join the Breyer one as well. So, this is our first really good look to see how to see how the court's working right now because this is really it's 5-4 on the basis of whether or not to issue the injunction when you get 
really into the merits, it's really more of a 5-1-3 case because you have Roberts over here with his own separate thing that he's doing. Because, And you could even say that Breyer's opinion and the Sotomayor dissent are a little different too because they're all saying something a little bit different, but you can lump those three liberals together. So it's really more of a 5-1-3 decision. And were this a case about the merits of what was going down here, it'd be 6-3. It could be even 7-2. I could see them winning Breyer over on saying Cuomo has overstepped his, his, you know, his legal ability here. So it kind of shows a fractured court where you have Roberts trying to figure out how he's going to work with this much more conservative court. And on the conservative side, you have the votes to both go 5-4 on a thing like this. There's no having to work with Roberts on this. You can just say, we're going to drop an injunction like this, and that's it. So liberals, after this case was decided, you had a lot of them take to Twitter and other social media sites, and they were saying, they were calling, you know, Justice Barrett, they were calling her now Amy COVID Barrett, which... I'll give them this. That is a pretty catchy name, but it's also just phenomenally stupid and doesn't make any sense because it's not based on a shred of evidence in this case or on any law. They're just saying that because we're allowing people to worship in their churches, that means that people are going to die now. And so that is obviously a bad thing. Letting people to go worship, that is obviously not essential to people on the left. And so they need to, we need to strike all this down. Now, I say this is a phenomenally stupid nickname, and that is a bad point that people are making because it's not borne by the actual evidence. And so we'll just, we'll just go here and see we'll go based solely on what the court says here. And what they do is they describe the governor's orders and then they show how these religious organizations are actually fine and they don't need these kinds of orders on them. So here's what the procurium order of the court said. Both applications, meaning both the Catholics and the Jewish applications, they seek relief from an executive order, which is which they're suing the governor of New York, which imposes very severe restrictions on attendance at religious servities in areas classified as red or orange zones. In red zones, no more than 10 people can attend a religious service. And in orange zones, attendance is capped at 25. The two applications, one filed by the Catholics and the other one filed by the Jewish organization and all the affiliated entities with them, they contend that these restrictions violate the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, and they ask us to stop enforcement of these restrictions while they pursue appellate review. Citing a variety of remarks made by the governor, the Jewish group argues that the governor specifically targeted the Orthodox Jewish community and gerrymandered the the boundaries of the red and orange zones to ensure that heavily Orthodox areas were included. Both the Catholics and Jewish communities here maintain that the regulations treat houses of worship much more harshly than comparable secular facilities, and they tell us without contradiction, that they have complied with all public health guidance and have implemented additional precautionary measures and have operated at 25 to 33% capacity for months without a single outbreak. 
So that's the main issue here. And you may have read about this and what Cuomo's done here. You have these different zones. But the key here is that these organizations don't have any evidence that they've had a single outbreak in any of these meetings that they've had. So you have them banning capacities and drawing up these zones to specifically target both Jewish and... I know they're targeting specifically Jewish communities here. I don't know if they're doing the same to Catholics. But these are not just like, hey, we're going to throw in all of this neighborhood. So we're not going to throw... Like if you're in, if you're in Nashville, you're, they're not just saying, oh, we're going to put all of East Nashville in this. No, what you're actually doing is you're basically drawing the lines for this to only include certain houses and certain specific streets of people. So if you wanted to knock out all the people in East Nashville who all go to a specific church, that's basically how they're drawing this. And they're targeting Jewish communities here. So they're specifically throwing these Jewish communities into specific zones. And the thing to note here, you have these red zones where no more than 10 can meet. What they have is evidence that Cuomo has drawn these uh, 10-person restriction areas specifically to target Jewish communities, because when you get with into some of these synagogues, they have to have at least 10 people there to have basically, basically a quorum so that they can meet. So you've effectively shut them down if you can't hit more than 10, and you've outright forbidden uh, women from attending at all, Jewish women. So there is a lot of very specific and targeted discrimination that the Jewish groups here, in this case, can point to and have ample evidence of exists. And for the Catholics, they are they are saying, basically, our free exercise rights are being violated by this. And they're both making that argument. And both of those have considerable merit. But again, the thing to note here, and I'm going to harp on this quite a lot here, is that they've been, arg- they've been operating at 25 to 33% capacity for months, with other precautionary measures, without a single outbreak. And this fact here, no no outbreaks, that is an uncontested fact in the lawsuit. The government doesn't contest that fact. None of the justices contest that fact. And the majority opinion points that out, that it's not a contested fact. The concurrences point out the same. And so you have this, this issue here where people are saying these groups should not meet because it's a danger to public health. When in fact, there's no proof that that's true. In in the process, you're using an untrue claim to take away their constitutional rights. So that's that's the big issue here. You have constitutional rights being taken away because it's been considered a threat and non-essential, and there's no evidence to back that up. So that's why I say the nickname Amy COVID Barrett is so off, because there's just not a shred of evidence these people are causing the outbreaks of COVID-19 in any of these cities. So you have to claim that they're a threat without proof. Now, of course, that's, of course, not stopping anyone. That's what they're doing anyway. But it's an, it's not, no one's contesting this fact. So you have people who are safely meeting, and now they're being prevented. And so... Later in the opinion, the court even says, not only is there no evidence that the applicants have contributed to the spread of COVID-19, but that there are other less restrictive rules that could be adopted to minimize the risk to those attending religious services. And then what the court does is they go, well, you know, there's all these other things you can do, and then they list them off. And so the point here is that 
New York is supposed to, if you're going to do something like this, you have to have a very specific set of rules where you're trying to address people's religious rights and you're not just trying to step on them. And New York is just stepping on people's rights. That's that's the, you know, the the 30,000 foot view here is that this is just flat out unconstitutional. And I know that's what these justices are thinking, especially Gorsuch, because he was even saying in his opinions that the that New York operating under Cuomo and de Blasio is effectively an unconstitutional regime right now. His exact words, unconstitutional regime. I was shocked to see that in a, a Supreme Court decision by a justice. But that's why I say when Gorsuch came out firing in his concurrence, he came out with both guns blazing. And we'll get more into a little bit of that. But my favorite line from the majority opinion here, it, it was the, as follows. It's, they said, members of this court are not public health experts, and we should respect the judgment of those with special expertise and responsibility in this area. But even in a pandemic, the Constitution cannot be put away and forgotten. The restrictions at issue here by effectively barring many from attending religious services, strike at the very heart of the First Amendment's guarantee of religious liberty. That is such a good passage. It is also completely true. And so, you know, while the, while the majority opinion mostly stayed above the fray, they made the argument, they built how they are going to move forward, Justice Court Gorsuch in his, in his concurrence was having none of, none of that. And Josh Blackman, uh, law professor, he his take on this was that Justice Gorsuch just flat out came to brawl, and I would agree with that. That was my opinion of this too. I had a long tweet thread on it when the the night the case came out, and some of you are probably new listeners because of that thread. And Gorsuch just flat out came out, both guns blazing, red hot, firing at everyone on the dissent. I mean, he was he was gunning for Cuomo, he was gunning for the dissenters, and he was gunning specifically for Roberts. And just for flavor here, the very first sentence in Gorsuch's opinion, his concurrence here, it was, and I quote, government is not free to disregard the First Amendment in times of crisis, end quote. So that's where he started off and it just got hotter from there on out. And he started out firing away at Cuomo. He said, At the same time, the governor has chosen to impose no capacity restrictions on certain businesses he considers essential. He puts essential in quotes. And it turns out the businesses the governor considers essential include hardware stores, acupuncturists, and liquor stores, bicycle repair shops, certain signage companies, accountants, lawyers, insurance agents are all essential too. So at least according to the governor, it may be unsafe to go to church, but it is always fine to pick up another bottle of wine, shop for a new bike, or spend the afternoon exploring your distal points and meridians. Who knew public health could would so perfectly align with secular convenience? So he was coming out hot here, pointing out that all these rules and all everything that the government is doing here is arbitrary. And when it comes to restricting constitutional rights, you cannot have arbitrary rules. You just flat out cannot. And these are arbitrary rules. 
you're you there's not even a scientific basis for a lot of these different rules because when you look at New York they're they're keeping the schools closed there's not a single shred of evidence that the schools should be closed kids are not a a strong way that this virus carries and the when you keep them out the the harm on school children is greater than the threat of the virus this has been proven out by multiple studies here so the only reason that you close these schools is because you're bowing to pressure from teachers unions in places like New York which Cuomo does Cuomo wants the supports of these unions and will do whatever they say and so these are not scientific decisions here these are wholly arbitrary decisions and these arbitrary decisions are being used to curtail constitutional constitutionally protected rights a little further down, and probably the most important observation in Gorsuch's opinion, and it gets to what I was just talking about, he says, The only explanation for treating religious places differently seems to be a judgment that what happens there just isn't as essential as what happens in secular spaces. Indeed, the governor is remarkably frank about this. In his judgment, laundry and liquor, travel and tools are all essential while traditional religious exercises are not. That is exactly the kind of discrimination the First Amendment forbids. And that's really the full juxtaposition that we have here. If you want to understand this case and these lawsuits, it's this notion of what is and isn't essential, and does the government have the power to say that a constitutionally protected right is not essential and they can prevent you from doing it. That's basically your million-dollar question. If you have a constitutionally protected right, can the government call it non-essential and not allow you to exercise that right? Now, the thing about this is that courts are trying to figure out what is and isn't essential and what are the rules that governments can and cannot do in controlling these rights. It's been a big issue on the lower courts, because on the one hand, you have a pandemic that's going spiraling out of control in a lot of these places, and you don't know what you're supposed to do. And you have all these different rules in all these different states, and so there's not something uniform that everyone can follow. So for instance, in a lot of these conservative red states, you have places of worship, they are seen as more protected and essential, and so the governments have worked with these places to keep them open. Now, you had, in the spring, everybody just kind of shut down because we didn't know what we were dealing with, but as things have gone along, people have tried to reopen, and in a lot of these red states, you've seen far more accommodations that have been made for houses of worship. In New York, they haven't done that at all. And in these blue states, they haven't done that at all. They've basically said, as Gorsuch notes, that being able to worship and follow your faith is not essential, and the government should have the ability to curtail that as much as they want. So they should be able to say, and target specifically, because if you look at any, you know, what Cuomo has said in New York, he knows he's targeting these Orthodox, Orthodox Jewish communities. He knows that. He's fine with that. That is specifically what he wants to do there. This is not something where they're hiding the ball. They actually specifically do want to target Jews, and they want to keep a lot of these churches, Catholic churches, and any of these other churches, they want them closed. 
And that's just not constitutional. If they, you take this pandemic away, these things would get slapped down so hard, your head would spin. So it's only because you have this pandemic setting where you're saying, in effect, that the pandemic overrides the Constitution, if you're in these blue states making that argument. And it is true. States have wide latitude during a public health crisis. States can do a lot of things. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, a lot of these different things, they seem unconstitutional, and a lot of them aren't. In a pandemic setting with public health at stake, a state state does have quite a bit of power. The question is, how far does that power go? And if you're dealing with an explicit constitutionally protected right, where's your end point? Where are your protections for that right? And the, the issue is, is that there, a lot of these states haven't put in protections to protect these constitutional rights. And I'll be honest, I don't know what the exact lines are here. This is all you know, very, very new. If you're, even if you're studying this, and I've tried to, we, we have some of our first few law review articles where people are talking about essential versus non-essential, how that interacts with rights. And so this is a very new area. But what you have here, interestingly enough, in these cases, is people are taking pretty extreme views. Now, it's true that even if you have your religious beliefs, you're not going to be able to do whatever you want. That is what some people have read this to mean, both on the left and the right. The left has blasted this case by saying, you know, you're just letting churches do whatever you want. And that's obviously not true here. But it's also not true that just because we're in a pandemic that you get to shut every, everybody down and, and curtail all the rights that you want to just to fight this pandemic. That is not the power that we've granted state or federal um, governments in their powers. So... That is your overarching argument here between all these different sides. Now, the reason the reason that John Roberts dissented in this case is because he wouldn't have granted the injunction, even though it's clear if you're reading through his opinion, he basically agrees with the conservatives that these these that both the Catholics and the Jews are likely going to win on the merits, that they actually have a case here, their rights are being violated, and they're going to win. He effectively agrees with that point. He just wouldn't have granted the injunction. And the reason that he he, he wouldn't do that is because both Cuomo and New York have ended these specific restrictions on the groups within this case. So the bans on 10 people in the red zones and the 25 in the orange zones no longer apply to the specific parties of this case. So what John Roberts and Justice Breyer and his dissent, they basically argue that because Cuomo got rid of the regulations, there's no more need for an injunction against him from enforcing this type of thing. So it's a very technical argument here. And it's clever. But you also have this majority opinion, you have the Gorsuch concurrence, and you have Kavanaugh, all writing separately, all specifically looking at this exact point saying, no, we reject that. They need the injunction. So why do they, how do they argue that? They point out that the governor has the power and has implemented these regulations at near random. And he didn't drop the order specifically in this case until it was, until I can't remember if it was clear that it was going before the Supreme Court or the Supreme Court granted cert and said that they were going to hear it. Either way, he, it was basically a, 
a specifically legally timed thing where he get, he wasn't this wasn't designed according to trying to stop covid because remember there's no proof these are super spreader events anyway so there all of this was done specifically trying to get this case and any injunctions thrown out so he could then you know do whatever he wants here so this was a legal thing and new york has done this in the past they there was a, a gun rights uh, um, case that the Supreme Court was going to take up. And at the very last second, New York gutted that law and said it no longer applied and asked for the Supreme Court to no longer hear that case. And the conservative justice were, were they were just flat out furious in that case, saying that it was pretty clear that the only reason the city did that is because they did not want to lose, and it was pretty clear they were going to lose, and get what they considered bad case law, what I would consider good, uh, regarding the Second Amendment, because it was pretty clear that the Second Amendment was about to get broadened out by the conservatives because New York had a bad law. Well, they got rid of the law because they didn't want that kind of case law floating. So it's pretty clear that a similar thing is happening here. Cuomo wants the power to do these types of things. And so as he's being sued, he'll lift these regulations and try to get the cases kicked out. And then the moment those cases are gone, back come the regulations. It's effectively a game of whack-a-mole here, and all the conservatives saw right through it. Gorsuch was even cynical uh, on this point, just basically saying that the only reason that he did this was because uh, he became for the Supreme Court, or at least implying that. So it's a really bad game of whack-a-mole, and the conservatives saw through it and said, no, we're just going to go ahead and implement the injunction because it's clear the threat's not gone. This this could still come back in any moment in time. So we're going to go ahead and protect the people. So Roberts and Breyer both said that they would deny the injunction solely on that basis. Breyer had a few other reasons, but the main reason was that one. And so that was the reason for the spat over that. Well, if you get into the actual merits, I think Roberts easily goes over to the conservative side. And there's also a chance you could win somebody like Breyer, depending on what is in the majority opinion. The only one's where it was clear they were not going to side with anybody with a religious belief, was Kagan and Sotomayor. So that's you know that, that that's the main gist of the argument between all of them. That's why the conservatives were so mad and why Gorsuch was firing so hard at at, at Roberts because he sees him as advocating his job and the court's duty here to protect people who are having their rights violated. So that's the you know the overarching parts of the case. I'm not gonna I'm basically gonna ignore for this episode the Sotomayor and Breyer sense. There's really once you get up that main point of the you know talking about whether or not this should the injunction should be granted and whether or not this is still a live issue. Once you get past that, there's really nothing of note in either of those dissents. The Sotomayor dissent spent time arguing that not only were these groups not discriminated against, but that Cuomo was giving these religious groups preferential treatment. And that's a direct quote with her language. She says they are granted preferential treatment. She says the Catholics and Jews are getting preferential treatment and should stop basically stop complaining. So all this discrimination, all this, it's really just targeted protection by Cuomo, and they should really be thankful for this treatment, according to Sotomayor. And so she is just a deeply unserious person and who spent more time with these trollish type argument. These are just trolls. There's nothing serious about these kinds of legal arguments. So she's just a deeply unserious person, and I lost a considerable amount of respect for her reading that. And... 
Just looking at this case from the vantage of this being a new court, it was interesting to see Roberts sticking in there with the lone dissent instead of trying to shape the majority opinion, which is what he normally does. And it's also interesting that he had that lone dissent and the liberals didn't invite him on to shape their own opinion. So he was out there just a man by himself. Normally he tries to get in and try to shape some kind of consensus view. And with Kavanaugh and Barrett being on board, that basically gave the conservatives the five votes they needed. Kavanaugh, in his conserv- in his concurrence, was explicitly trying to reach out and bring Roberts in, but that didn't happen. That was kind of what a lot of people thought Kavanaugh would do if he were on the court, that he would pull, or at least try to pull, Roberts to the right. And that was the first real hint that we've seen that happening in this case. So if this case, once we eventually get to the merits here, Worst case scenario, it's going to be 6-3 for the conservatives. It could end up being closer to 7-2, depending on Breyer, because in his his writing, he he sympathized with both groups. He just wouldn't have granted it for a variety of reasons. The only people who truly did not sympathize and wouldn't have given any ground to were Sotomayor and Kagan. So the court is definitely much more conservative. Having Barrett on the court prevented Roberts from being able to kick this out on a technicality, which is a good thing. And also, when you have it going like this, it undercuts a lot of the bad case law from the spring, where the Supreme Court was basically deferring to the state government, saying, go ahead, do whatever you want. We don't really know how or what we're going to do here. And so now you're beginning to see the conservatives on the court reassert the Supreme Court's power here and say, okay... This may be a pandemic, but we've still got the Constitution and we've got to enforce that. So the litigation on this is going to continue. Uh, I would have very happily signed on to the Gorsuch concurrence. I thought it was just fantastic. Um, But given the way this is now, I think there's much better odds, both in the lower courts and eventually when this stuff gets back to the Supreme Court, that these groups are going to start winning their cases now because they don't have bad case law hanging over their head from the spring. So this is a really good decision, even though it's only dealing with the injunction in a very limited set, but it has some far-reaching potential here. And because it's such a new area, everybody is listening. So very good case. It's very good to see this newly constituted Supreme Court and how it is shifting things, even in subtle situations like this. So with that, what this wing brings us to this week's light item. Now, remember I said at the beginning of the show we were going to go back to 2016. So if you watched John Stewart's Daily Show back in the day, uh, the clip I'm about to share, it's kind of like one of his moments of zen that he would use to, to cap off the show. This clip is from MSNBC in 2016 from Chris Hayes' show. So for context, right now in 2020, you have Trump campaign trying to convince some of these states to choose Trump-friendly electors to have them vote for Trump in the Electoral College vote that's coming up here in December. They want them to vote for, for Trump versus whatever their state voted for. So this is obviously, this argument has caused a lot of belly aching in the press. They're calling this bad, a threat to democracy, and et cetera, and et cetera. And, you know, generally, I agree with that. I think that it is bad. Electors should vol- follow the state law. And most states, their law is pretty simple on this. They're following whoever the people voted for in their state. That is how they allocate their electors. 
Some states have recently tried to change that, and you have some of these popular vote initiatives where the state says, we will ignore what our people voted for and go with whatever the popular vote dictates. So eventually, we're going to have a lawsuit here one of these days where some of these blue states, the popular vote's going to go to conservative, and these blue states who have pledged their electorate to the popular vote winner are all of a sudden going to have to ignore the wishes of their state and give their electors over to the Republican, which is going to be a very hilarious day, mind you. Anyway, back to this point. So Donald Trump obviously changed all this for, for people on the left. They saw him win, and they said, well, we don't want him to be in office, so we should look for ways to keep him out of office. They looked at the Electoral College and said, that's our way to do that. So here, here's Chris Hayes discussing this theory in 2016 with Michael Moore. I think there are people who are pushing very hard who think that um, because of some of the constitutional perils of the emoluments clause, uh, because of the popular vote margin, because of um, a fundamental, they think, threat to liberal democracy, that, that, the, that electors should be persuaded and pressured on Monday to, to part with what their pledge is and vote, and vote against Donald Trump. Yes, they absolutely you should do so? that. Absolutely. I've, I believe right now that there are electors. They only need 38 of them who have a conscience or who are worried about a man who won't attend the daily security briefings, who, uh, who we now know Russia was trying to help get elected. I mean, can you imagine if, this, if you or I had been running for office and they, they showed that the Iranians were somehow involved in helping you or me get elected? What would happen to you or me, Chris? I'm just curious. What would happen? This I think is- it would be a totally chill situation. So yeah, all laughy and jokey there with Chris Hayes and Michael Moore talking about how electors should should change their vote and not vote for Donald Trump. Now, interestingly enough, we did have faithless what's called a faithless elector. They didn't go by what their state said. I think there were about ten in total. Three of them didn't vote for Trump. Seven of them didn't vote for Clinton. <laughs> they went off and voted for other people. So the the actual problem was on the other side. People who didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton. So, you know, hypocrisy just knows no bounds here. So, remember, as you listen to the media and all these journalists talk about how this particular Trump theory, and again, I don't think this is a good theory on changing the results of the election, but I am well aware that the first people to argue for this in the modern era, because this really hasn't been an issue in any of the previous election, the first people to argue this were people of the left, So, you know, just keep that in your back pocket as you're watching things this week. That's all I've got for this week's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. It will be back this week. We're on a break for Thanksgiving, but I will be back this upcoming week. So make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode. 